In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I'm not sure how to say any of this. Um, turn to Ephesians. We'll start with something solid. Turn to Ephesians, please. Tonight we were going to be in Esther, but we're not. Um, tonight my wife was going to um, share with you guys a series of narratives from Esther, but we're not. I was just testing her to see if she was willing to. She worked so hard. Seriously, like, I was, like, playing mom and she was playing dad all week. And I was taking the kids out of the house so she could do something she's not used to and studying. And then I said, ha-ha, just kidding. April? No, I'm not. No, that's not true. Um, I, um, um, I mean, I know that Father's Day is usually a little lower, but I it was it's much lower than i anticipated and i felt wretched that my seeing how hard britney worked to steal her nerves put a narrative together for esther i i just i didn't want half the church to miss what she put together so um we called an audible during the second song of, of your worship we were whispering about what we wanted to do and um that's what we decided is that i would just I, we would um, we would just have a, we would push it all back on a week, which is going to make my schedule to finish the Old Testament by Advent a little bit tighter. But I had a, about a one or two week cushion. You always have a cushion. That's what I've learned in life. Always have a cushion. So we should be okay. Um, but nonetheless, look forward to that. That's next week. Um, Brit, so now you know, like the cover's blown. I just had to blow it because otherwise you'd be like, what in the world is going on tonight? So, um, Brittany's going to be sharing the book of Esther next week. Um, it is my great desire. I just haven't always known how to launch and begin and move in this direction. But it has been my desire to see this church act as a family, act connected, supporting and loving one another, knowing each other's names, knowing how we can pray, knowing how we can jump in and help if there are any needs. And to varying degrees, we've done a really good job of that over the last year. But in other areas, sometimes just a stereotypical church, people file in and people file out. Um, It... um, Part of my goal in this, see, I, I wanted to, I wanted to build things slowly. Um, one hand, what happened is Pastor Mike gave me the church two and a half years ago. He wanted to do it like five years ago, but I was in no interest. I had no interest in running a organism of people. <laughs> um, People are mysterious to me. I'll read hard texts. I'll solve complicated riddles. But people are an enigma. They are hard for me to crack. So um, that part didn't excite me. But eventually God moved. He made it clear to Brittany and I, like, look, we contemplated moving. Just like, I don't know. The world's at our fingertips. What do we do? And then it just made sense. It just seemed like everything was coming together in God's will. So we finally 
relieve Pastor Mike. Because you might remember for the last two years or so, he was basically living in Costa Mesa-ish, Loma Linda somewhere. Not Loma Linda, but... Um, Whittier. 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 I think it's Whittier, yeah. Uh, and coming up here on Sundays and helping Pastor Brian at Calvary Chapel... And so I say relieved, not because he did not like this church. He loved it, and he showed that so much. But he was, I I think um, it just, he knew God was moving him on, and he knew God had another pastor in mind. It was just me dragging my feet. So all that to say, here we are. I think we took over the church in June or July of 2018. Does that sound right? About July. I think we agreed in June, and then he, like, announced it in July. And um, then, so a few months go by. You know, everyone's unsettled by change. It happens. Um, I did everything pretty much the way Pastor Mike does. I was already teaching a lot anyways, so it didn't seem to me like there was a lot of change. But people just... I don't know. Maybe they wanted me to do more than I was doing. I don't know. But, you know, there's a little bit of shuffling and settling. And then... November, people are out all the time. Like three, four weeks. At, where have you been? Oh, we've been that long. You've been sick that long. We've been sick that long. Je- November and December, there's these mysterious illnesses. Do you remember this? Mm-hmm. This is before we knew anything of this dreadful COVID. Mm-hmm. People were sick all the time. And I saw students out of the classroom for record stretches. It was weird. And then my dad, who never gets sick, strangely got sick. And it's like all these things. And then, and then, um, we go through the new year, you get through the winter, and then March comes. And we all find out, oh. <laughs> and so we go to live streaming for a few weeks, um, all the way till Easter. And then um, we're trying to navigate this delicate balance of we have elderly people who can severely die or get really sick. Um, and then we have people that think that this is all a fluke. And it's like, what do you do? How do you make decisions? So we try to, like, toe the line a little bit and, like, have a middle ground we we were outside and uh trying to do both like we're meeting and outside sounds pretty safe and then people are all upset so they they decide we're going to the church that doesn't believe that the coronavirus is a big deal so so those things happen and god was moving god was doing things that god needs to do to get a family together so we finally move back inside and then we begin to more and more people begin to come back and some people never come back and that to be honest was hurtful it wasn't hurtful to see our church go from so many to so many. We literally lost half our church through COVID. But um, what hurt, was hurtful was people never saying bye. Or people saying, oh, we'll be back when things are back to normal. Knowing full well that they never intend to come back. It's like, why don't you just say it? Why don't you just say it? I mean, like, are we not a family? Do we not care for one another? Um, and those things are kind of rocking me a lot. Um, so... I wanted to, COVID was a great chance to say, let's start over. This is a brand new church. And I actually fully believe that COVID was a church plant. We were so purged that I believe we're only two years old or however old it is now, I guess. Since COVID? No, it's not. COVID's two. COVID's two. The church... Just, I thought you were talking about the church. So you took it over in four years. 2019, August. Um, after so much prayer and consideration, I wanted a church service where we don't just come in, listen to 30 to 40 minutes of music, 
sometimes singing along, sometimes not, because you know or don't know the songs and complaining about this one or that one. And then hearing me talk a lot about the Bible and then us singing a song and going home. That, that's what we were doing. That's what most of my growing up was about. That's what this church was about. Um, so I wanted to tinker. And I wanted a chance for you guys to raise your voices in thanksgiving. To raise your voices in praise. Not just in singing, but in prayer. I wanted us to have a chance to just not... Be somewhat mindful right before we receive the bread and the cup to say, I'm sorry for my sins. I wanted an actual intentional moment of silence and scripturally led prayer into have mercy on me, Lord. Um, I wanted us to be saying scriptures on our lips, um, hearing prayers that aren't just spontaneous. There's a lot of that. We have a lot of spontaneous prayer, but also prayers that are intentional. They're prepared. You'll, you'll notice that if all you do spontaneous prayers, all you're doing is just prayers. You know what I mean? People say just a lot when they're just coming up with a prayer. Lord, just bless us tonight. Just be with us. Just, and it ends up being the same thing you said last week and the week before. It ends up being a form of prayer anyways, but more intentional form of prayer so that we learn other ways of of interceding to God, older ways that the church has always prayed. So we have a little bit of that. It's like, there's been a lot of thought into like, how do we shape a community that begins to embody the worship, not just by sitting and having noise be thrust, but by also getting a chance to respond. Because I don't know if you notice this, but the Bible is actually a call and response. It's what God wants from his people. In Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, five books, God speaks to his people. And then the book of Psalms comes, called the Psalter. And it is arranged in five books. I don't know if you notice that as you pray the Psalms. It says book one. And down to chapter 42, it's book two. It's arranged in five books as an intentional response to God's call in Genesis through Deuteronomy. The Psalms become God's people's response to him. And this is always the order. God acts, people respond. God speaks, we obey. God saves, we follow. He forgives, we get up off our faces and say thank you. This is the Christian life. And so we wanted, when I say we, me and those, I've, you know, mostly my wife and myself and other, a few other people not really, um, here anymore because they moved. Not because they don't like us, they moved. <laughs> um, this to us looks scriptural. And um, I've appreciated your going along with the journey. Now, one danger is that we become, and thank you for those who've raised the questions, we become very passive um, because you know what's coming. You know the order. You know the flow. Um, but don't forget, the goal is that we're not only singing and hearing a sermon because that can also be very passive. But we are also getting to raise our voices. We get to engage in confession. We have this great, beautiful break. One of my favorite parts of Sunday is right after we recite a creed and then we greet one another because Christ is among us before the sermon and just the life and energy. Ah, so great. Like that's fantastic. But let's also be intentional. Let's be intentional. Let's meet that person you haven't spoken to before. Get their name. Um, sometimes someone's new. M introduce them to someone you know. Um, sometimes you have to apologize for something that was said or done. We should never approach 
Christ's bread and cup without reconciling ourselves, right? We have tons of space in our service leading up to the moment when we are most one with Christ. There should be no reason for us not to have our hearts ready. And, um, and then we get to pray for the world. Um, when we pray after the sermon, um, sometimes it's exceptionally quiet. Sometimes it's exceptionally prayerful. It just ebbs and flows. It's weird. But um, this is a time, if we, you know what the early church did? The earliest records we have is that they would do that. After the sermon, they would raise their voices in prayer. And the people would listen to the needs of others in their prayers. And they would then see that as invitation to go meet the needs of others. We have this opportunity. We're not just praying for show. And that's what's hard for us to get past is when we think of praying out loud, we think of show. We think of, I got to say it in the right language or do it the right way. Sometimes prayer is standing up and saying, I need a place to live in three weeks. So what do we do? This is a call and a response. Someone called, we respond, we pray over them. We keep this in the back of our mind. Someone has an extra house. Hey, uh, I'm going to pray about this. We come back to them, you know, and and we offer it to them. Like this is part of intercession is that we interconnect, <laughs> intercede and intermix and um boy. This is this is this is the pattern we're going after. It's all if you haven't noticed, it's really patterned after the temple of God, which is what the church is. We enter with praises, we fall at the altar of confession, we rise washed in the water of his word. The priest would wash the blood and guts off of them. We enter into the temple where the candle reminds us of who we are and who God is. And then uh, you might remember at the other side of the temple was the table of showbread, which is where I've placed the communion to remind us that he, Christ, is our bread of life. And at the very center of all of that was the place of intercession. It was called the altar of incense, where incense was offered to God as the prayers of Israel and the priests would pray for the people. You may remember Zechariah got a chance to do this and offer, this is Luke chapter one, the Christmas story. He would come and offer incense and then the people were outside praying and waiting for Zechariah to come back who was interceding on behalf of their prayers before God, before the veil. Um, and, um, and then he had the vision of the angel and it took a while and they're all worried. And that's when he learned he's going to have John the Baptist. He's coming to you. Yeah. Um, that was the, that was the model. So we, we move in that progression and we intercede. And then, and then because of Christ, we get to enter into the Holy of Holies. And brothers and sisters, when we are reconciled with one another, when we are living in harmony, when we are pursuing one another in love, and we are living as a family, we have the right as the body of Christ to then enter into the Holy Police because it was the body of Christ which ripped the veil open. Hebrews 9 says, the veil was torn. We have a new and living way to approach God. The veil was torn. And then he says, the veil which was his flesh. When Christ's flesh was torn, when we break this bread, we are opening the way into the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies, as we heard through the Song of Songs for a few weeks, this is the place of communion, of union, and oneness with God. This is the ultimate Christian destination that we throw off our identity. We receive his identity. He takes on our identity. 
There is this great exchange and this great oneness. He is now in me and I am in him. And of course, that's always true. It's not only true when you come forward, of course. But this is a weekly reminder that we come forward and we receive Christ's life given to us. We once had communion in the back. You remember this? At all of the little aisle points. And, and we would invite you to go when you feel ready during the song to take communion. But the Lord said to me, that's not how we live the Christian life. We don't go and take for ourselves. We receive God's grace. It's not something we earn. It's not something that I grasp. It's something that he gives open-handed. And so I thought it was appropriate that we come as one to the same place. We come forward and we receive. Um, And then lastly, um, (laughs) um, forgive me if it's terrible, but um, we've been bringing homemade loaves because these are our gifts to God. Right in the early church, um, after they went, their agape feast was the first communion celebration. Then when the church got a little bit bigger, it went to more of this style. And which is fine because Jesus seems to have modeled it in the scriptures anyways. Um, but um, the early church um, at the time of offerings, the offerings wasn't necessarily money. It was offerings of food. And then it was given back to the people as communion. Um, So we wanted to get back to something kind of like that, where there's a home touch to it and there's an offering. And um, also, you don't, maybe you know this or don't. Sorry, I'm getting super nerdy on you guys because you have to hear me. So um, I would never prepare a sermon like this. But um, commercial bread, commercial bread is fake. The ancient bread that people always ate is nothing like what we buy in the store anymore. What we use is commercial yeast, which is a simulation of the way bread used to be made. It's just quick rising stuff. Um, Way back when, bread was first invented when someone left out their wheat and water porridge and um, yeast in the air got stuck in it. And then it started to ferment and it began to balloon. And they're like, oh, let's put this in the oven. And then it came out bigger than when they put it in. They thought, we can multiply food this way. Like, this is the start of bread. And um, the, the way that this is done today is through sourdough. A sourdough starter is the old way. All bread used to be made with a starter. And um, so we wanted to get back to making bread with the starter, not because we shun commercial bread, not at all, um, but because by going to commercial bread or even just a cracker, you actually lose the theological significance of old-fashioned bread. Old-fashioned bread is alive. Starter is a living thing. You have to feed it or it dies. Starter gets mixed with wheat, water, and salt, and something happens. A life begins to happen when you put them together. It rises. It's a living organism. You put it in the oven, and it comes out, and it feeds people. Um, This is what the church is. It's a living organism. We're not a flat cracker. We are a yeast, a, a, a colony of bacteria. Bacteria can be good, okay? A colony of bacteria, and we feed one another. And and I don't know if you know how, like, the fermentation works, but basically, like, the bacteria lets gas out. And the gluten, 
Gluten, which is not an evil, gluten's bad because it's isolated in most of our products, but gluten, when properly digested, is a little easier. Of course, there are some people who severely cannot have gluten. That's a different story. But um, gluten's easier to digest on the human body when it's done with a fermented starter because the gluten is meant to hold in that gas, and that's what creates the rise. And this is what the church is. The spirit comes and works at the grassroots of a church. It begins when we severely, severely, I meant sincerely, severely too. When we sincerely and severely worship God fiercely, we then begin to, the spirit begins to bubble within us. And then what we need to do is hold our arms out for one another as a gluten structure. And that lets the church grow. That's the image. That's why bread has always been a huge component. And of course, wine, you can go into the same story with wine. Um, wine is a fermented beverage. Now, we have used grape juice always, and um, that is that seems to me to be the wise decision because wine is a huge stumbling point for some people, and some people never let that cross their lips. I would hate to be some, the person to <laughs> ruin that for many people, right? So grape juice is fine. By the way, the early church, a lot of them used water, just so you know. Okay, so um, we already have a roughly a two-hour service, sometimes shorter. I, that's, that is not the American standard. <laughs> and um, and then, you know, and then after adding another hour, or so you got work the next day, like, it's like there's absolutely no disappointment that more people aren't a part of that, other than it would be great if they were, but we get it. And so that... That is what um, I think our church needs to get to more of that. But that doesn't have to be done on Sundays. And um, I want you guys to pray about phase two. Phase two has to happen. The early church um, had, um, they came out of the synagogue. They first worshiped in the synagogue. And evidence shows from archaeology that the synagogue was an incredibly ordered worship service. The early church, it's, it's actually a myth that the early church sat around and kind of spontaneously did church. Um, they were very ordered coming out of the synagogue, and they carried on their Jewish heritage because this is what Christianity is. It's the fulfillment of Judaism. Judaism broke off of the true way. We are what Christ, what God had intended when he called Abraham out of Ur. This was the intent. And the early church continued the rhythms and patterns of worship that the synagogue gave. Now, of course, it morphed and changed a little bit because when you have Christ as the answer to all these things, you're going to have a different shape. Christ is at the center. But um, but one of the things that we do see in Acts is they not only worshiped in the temple, which is where they would have done those very familiar rhythms and patterns of worship, like what you guys are used to, but um, they also met in each other's homes in between those. And there they broke bread with one another. And so they celebrated communion every time they gathered underneath someone's house, they broke bread. In other words, it's, it's not super, there's not enough detail there for us to know for sure, but it seems to me that the tradition of, you know how you pray for your food before you eat? This is a long, long, long tradition that we've just totally forgotten. Why do we do this? Oh, so it doesn't kill us. Um, this, is, this is a long tradition that I believe stems to the early church that they did not eat apart from each other's company because the early church was heavy on fasting and eating as communion. Every time we eat meals together, it is Christ's body and blood among us. Like his, he's present when we break bread together. And so they would pray, not just bless this food. They would pray 
as a church of thanksgiving, confessing sins, like a full on actually let's get together and pray then eat. According to my research, that's what it looked like. And I think our tradition of praying before we eat dinner is a very, very miniaturized form of that in-house service. What we need is we need more together time in between the week or in between Sundays. I want you to pray. I'm terrible at organizing, so thank you for calling us the most organized church you've ever seen. Um, we need, we need whether they're in homes or whether they're like midweeks, but it needs to be more body life. I am not interested in lecturing more. I teach at the Christian school. Um, I preach my heart out on Sundays. Um, I can, obviously, like, and I love it. Honestly, I actually would love if everyone lined up and said, can you please do a midweek service on Ephesians? I would love nothing more. But I don't think that that's what we need, per se. Um, we need, we need yes, getting together in the middle of the week, but not Pastor Brandon talking to you. We need getting together during the week and you talking to each other and getting to know each other. And I think the most important things that the early church did, we need to break bread together. Not necessarily literal bread, but we need to break food together because that's how we get to know each other. That's where barriers come down and that's where commonality is. We all eat the same stuff with a few dietary restrictions, but um, we are one at one table. And, And if we do this in the name of Christ and in the name of this is communion, when the church is eating together, we are eating the Lord's Supper. Um, that's what we need. We need that. And, um, I'm thankful for you who are dying. Your dying wish is to see this happen in the church. But I'm now turning it over to you guys because I've sat on this for almost a year and I'm not sure how to do it. I, I'm not into doing things just to do. That's what my comment wasn't as a dismiss of Calvary Chapel and being busy. I was trying to actually just say, I don't want to do things just to do them. Um, oh, you, you, so, so you're yeah. saying, Pastor Brandon, you don't want to go through the motions. Yes. Like um, clockwork. I want us to get together in the middle of the week, but to it to be done the way the Lord's leading us. Is that to get together and discuss the sermon? Sure. Why not? Is that to get together and go through a book study? Maybe. Is that to get together and just eat and laugh and get to know each other? Great. I don't know. Um, but is it in a house? Is it at a restaurant? Is it at a coffee shop? Is it in this room? I don't know. I don't think those things are the solution or the formula, but it's asking the Holy Spirit, how does he want the church to get together? Because that's where we find the strength to give generously for those who have needs. I, We in America harbor and hoard our things because we're afraid of social security. If I give this away and something happens to me, I'm lost. Well, that's because we don't have a, I don't mean social security. I mean a security blanket of social connections. The early church could give, Barnabas could give all of his land, like we looked at last week, because he knew that the rest of the church was there to do the same for him if needed. Do you hear what I'm saying? But in America, we don't believe in that. We don't look at each other and say, I will do whatever it takes to help you because we don't have the security of the rest of the church catching us if something happened to us. So what we do is we hold on to our stuff and we keep to ourselves and we don't open up. And also part of the problem is we are very aware of the fact that someone might just hop to the next church next week and my investment went nowhere. We need trust. That happens we need trust, but if there's love, I don't know if anyone can leave love. Um, we, like My goal is not to put on the most entertaining church service. We are by far the least entertaining church service on the mountain. You guys sit through a lot, and then you participate too, but <laughs> you, you uh, sit through me a lot. Yeah, I, yeah, okay. 
We gotta get going. Um, so pray, pray, pray that the Holy Spirit would lead us. If you have ideas, I'm all about ideas. Albert said that earlier, I guess. I'm about your ideas, I mean. Um, yeah, um, I just think that we need to get together and break bread at, at a minimum. And if that's just all we do, that would be wonderful. Okay? Amen. That is also how the early church can stand up to persecution. If you knew that you would be beheaded next week for Christ, if you stood up, some militia takes over our mountain, starts executing Christians, you'd be terrified. But if you knew that devout men would go and uncover, find your body and give it proper burial, if you knew other Christians would risk their life to see to it that your death is glorious, would you not be more willing to give your life? Would you not be more comforted? If you knew that by my standing up against this agenda and then being canceled from culture and losing my job would then result in the church saying, we've got you, you won't go hungry, you have a place to stay, would you not be more willing to take risks? This is why the church in America is the way it is. We've lost the power of the gospel embodied through people being together. Okay, let me let's finish. I, 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 we can't end without we can't end with just my thoughts. We have to go to scripture a little bit. So, forgive me for taking so much of your time. Ephesians chapter one. Um, I just want to share with you one word. Anakephaleo sastai. Anakephaleo sastai. It is. The longest word in the Bible, it's 17 characters. I shared this at graduation on Thursday, and someone came in tonight and said, it'd be a good idea to share it at the church. And I was like, well, oh, goodness, we might be pushing Brittany back next week. Whoa! Unfortunately, I've already given you a sermon before this, so this will be shorter than Anakephaleo Sastai. Um, it is 17 characters long. It's the longest word in the Bible. Seventeen characters. If this was a baseball jersey, it would go from the belt up across the <laughs> shoulders and back down to the belt, and I think three letters would be tucked underneath the belt. It is a long word. Anakephaleo sastai. What does it mean? Where is it? Well, it is located in the very center of the longest sentence in the Bible. Wow. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 through verse 14 is a single sentence in the Greek. That is 202 words. No grammar teacher would let that fly. But the Apostle Paul... Now, here's what's also impressive. You can sit down and order, if you worked hard enough, order a well-constructed 202-word sentence that made sense, right? You could type that out. Some of us would take a lot longer than others, but you could do it. What's most impressive is that Paul dictated his letters to an amanuensis, which is somebody who wrote down what he said. Not quite dictating. They sometimes re, they, they made it sound pretty because Paul would just kind of walk around and just let his thoughts come out and the amanuensis would put it down nice and pretty. He orated a 202 word sentence of the most magnificent theology we have in scripture in Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. We could go weeks going through these verses. Um, that's impressive to me. That's Paul. Um, so in the center of this sentence is Anakephaleo Sastai. And it's it's in verse 10, but let's read verse 7 so we get a sense of what it means. 
So one verse seven in Christ, that's him in Christ. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. So all this is made possible, sponsored by God's grace. Verse eight, which he lavished, not stingy, not just enough, but as John in chapter one says, grace upon grace. He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose. How has he made known the mystery of his will? How has he shown us his purpose? Which he set forth in Christ, verse 10, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. How has he shown us the mystery of his will? Paul says he set it forth in Christ. Christ became the blueprint. He was the plot structure of this story he's telling. It all comes to a head in Christ. The sub points of everything God's been doing, his plan for the ages, all come under the main point when Christ appears. That's what he's saying. In Christ, he's uniting all things, things in heaven and on earth. Now, that word to unite, some, it might be another uh, translation in some of your other Bibles, but in the ESV, it's to unite. You can also say bring together. Anakephali um, osastai. That's the word right there, to unite. And it means to bring together. It means to sum up. It means to unite. But sum up. Isn't that interesting? It's to sum something up. Um, here's how one scholar put it. Anakephali osastai is to bring things together under one head. So here's what we have. We just shared pieces of information, stories, reflections. I just shared with you a bunch of stuff. Some of it was thrown out. Some of it was more comprehensible. We have in our lives moments that seem incomprehensible, that just happen, that just come to us. We have experiences. We have memories in the past. We'll have many more moments in the future. And all of these are just isolated shards and fragments unless they come underneath one head. Did you know that that's what makes a story? If you do not have everything in a story coming under one head, you just have random scenes. A man weeps in church. A woman raises Cheerios to her mouth. A man and a woman are shouting at each other. Who's the good guy? Who's the bad guy? What brought them to this point? What is at stake? None of these are answered. They're random scenes. Are these all in the same story? You would have no idea unless these subpoints, these fragments were brought under, were summed up, were counted underneath one head. That's what a story is. That's what God is saying, that's what Paul is saying, that Christ is. He sums up all of the loose ends of our lives. He sums up all of the little moments and experiences. It's as if we have a bunch of subpoints. We don't know what the subpoints are for. Subpoints only make sense when you have a main point. He's the main point. Now all of a sudden, that makes sense in Christ. What is to come, I can do and enter into in Christ. Christ is, as it's as the definition of anakephala, is to bring all things together under one head. All things in my life, all things in the world are finding their sum in Christ. It's like a math problem. 
all you're working on this you ever do you remember this from high school you'd work on these long it's taking up the whole probably chalkboard for most of you whiteboard today it's taking up the whole board and you're like where is this going and somewhere in the middle of it you forgot where you started and there's all these numbers and these processes and then suddenly boom it gets to the sum now it makes sense this is what christ is and it's interesting that we use the words, we use words like this. When we talk about the structure of a story, we talk about plot. Plot is, yes, the way a story moves, but do you know that plot also refers to a map where you chart progress? You plot things on the map. It's showing you progress. It's showing you where the head is. Um, story, the origin of the word story is actually to build. It's where we get the concept of you have how many stories to a building. It's the same root. A story is building with event after event, it's building to a head. Um, the word a tale, when you tell a tale, do you know the word tale, its origin was also used to talk about counting numbers. That was a tale, counting, collecting. These are what we mean when we talk about stories. But without story, everything that happens is just a fragmented moment and it doesn't matter. So the tragedy you went through is a waste. The joy you went through is meaningless. But that's where anakephalaiosastai comes in. Christ is the one who makes all, he gives all of this context. And he says, now you can count it all joy, my brothers and sisters. Because I am summing it all up as the head of everything that has happened. That's maybe what we need to remember as we go forward as a church and in our own individual lives is that Christ is the head. I'm a nobody. And I need you to know, I pray this every day. I remind God. It's like we have a deal kind of. I remind him, you put me in charge of this church. I did not seek it. I did not ask for it. Pastor Mike waited and waited. We we sought moving at one moment. Not seriously, but we considered it. He gave this to me. I am simply the one that you have to suffer with alongside. I'm just holding up going, cool, God, work. Come on, people, let's work. Like, let's move as a body. Just so you know. So he is our anakephaliosastai. We look to him, the largest word in the Bible. Christ is the largest object of worship in our lives. And he can hold it all. Did you ever know holding glory is heavy? (laughs) Don't hold glory. Don't take credit. It's heavy. Because then that's what you have to do. You have to keep up the act. Uh Oh, it's, it's, it's rough. Let him have it all. Let the head sum it all up. And you will live free. And we will allow the Holy Spirit to work afresh and to lead us the way he wants us to be. I'm not into modeling ourselves after that one. That street, that church on the street is successful. Let's do what they're doing. That is how like 90% of churches run. I, I've read the books out there. They're all formulas. Yeah. Holy Spirit, come. You are who makes us who we are. Let's seek him.